From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into this edition of Hand Raised Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. I'm Neil McCready. Today on the show, uh, three guests, three interviews that will bring to you uh, covering a, a myriad of topics. Chase Parham of uh, MPW Digital, rebelgrove.com, sits down with Kendall Rogers of D1 Baseball. They talk about the big series this weekend in Oxford between fifth-ranked Tennessee and top-ranked Ole Miss. That series gets started on Friday night, 6.30 p.m. Saturday's a 7 o'clock game. And then the uh, series finale Sunday afternoon at 1.30. So Chase and Kendall talk about uh, that series and more. Uh, Ole Miss held its pro day on Wednesday. I talked to uh, Neil Stratton of Inside the League about uh, some of the Ole Miss prospects, what he thinks about Matt Corral, Sam Williams, um, Jerry and Ely and others. We talk about some NFL topics, especially some of the quarterback carousel that has happened around the National Football League as the NFL gets ready for its draft next month in Las Vegas. And then I also sat down with Dan Matthews of 680 The Fan in Atlanta. We talked about um, the Falcons, their plans moving forward without Matt Ryan, who has dealt to Detroit. Uh, I'm sorry, to Indianapolis, not Detroit, earlier in the week. I apologize to the Ryan family for even scaring them with that uh, even thought. We also talk about the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, the defending world champs, uh, getting ready to get started without Freddie Freeman as their uh, starting first baseman for the first time in a long time. Freddie Freeman now with the Dodgers. The Braves went out and uh, traded for and extended Matt Olson. So we talk about that, Ronald Acuna's health, and uh, some more Braves topics. We also talk about uh, SEC football. Still months away, but it's never too early to talk about the upcoming SEC season as spring football is underway in Oxford and kind of all over the the southeast, all over the country. So we'll get to all of those topics and uh, more. First, I want to tell you that we're brought to you by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Same great names, same great products, I should say, same great services, just different names. If you are in the Oxford, Tupelo area, get in touch with the people at Comer, 662-801-1777. If you are in uh, the Memphis area, Hernando, South Haven, Olive Branch, DeSoto County, that area, get in touch with the people at Southern. It's uh, 662-429-4429. Don't forget, it's uh, that time of year. If you go outside, you can tell it's still a little chilly at night, that kind of thing. But in the daytime, it's starting to warm up. You can see things getting green. You know the heat is coming. If you've not yet turned on your air conditioner, it won't be long until you do. You want to make sure that it's running in tip-top shape. So get in touch with the people at Comer, the people at Southern. Also, don't forget that those are the guys that are the sponsors of the Troy Brown Show, which will be debuting here in the next week or two, I think. Uh, The transfer portal linebacker from Central Michigan uh, in line to be the starting linebacker for Ole Miss, doing a show with him throughout the 2022 football season. That show made possible by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. So please, if you are in the market for uh, air conditioning, heating needs, that kind of thing, make sure that Comer and Southern are the call that you make. We would appreciate it. They would too. Uh, That's sort of, um, people always ask, how can I support your podcast? That's how. You can support sponsors 
who have been good to us for uh, a long time, and it certainly is the case with Comer and Southern. Um, this will be the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast, the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford, just next door to the Oxford Crystal. If you're coming in for the weekend to uh, see the Rebels and the Vols coming in for spring football, whatever the case may be, make sure that you fill up at uh, the Oxford Exxon. Take a picture on social media, tag us, tag Oxford Exxon. Uh, ben Craddock and the people there at the Oxford Exxon would certainly appreciate it. We would as well. Uh, always clean, always great services, great place to grab a snack, grab uh, a soda, a frozen daiquiri, whatever the case may be there at the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford. I'm in the uh, Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford is in Amory, Mississippi. 662-257-1900 is the number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's right to the bottom line. No hassle, no haggle. You get your quote. The rest is completely up to you. You can shop that quote around. You can do what I've done, what I recommend that you do, and that's hop into a Clark Ford today, 662-257-1900. Great service, great product. Corey wants to be your car guy. He wants to be your truck guy. You'll find out what that means when you make that call. Again, 662-257-1900. Kendall Rogers, Neil Stratton, Dan Matthews, all join us on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. Great place if you're coming in this weekend, uh, enjoying some of the festivities and the ball games and the practices and stuff. Go grab a burger, a po' boy, an appetizer, uh, great beer selection, full bar, all of that and more at Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. Also, Rafters in New Albany. If you're in or around New Albany, make sure that you make Rafters a part of uh, your day there. Let's see, uh, what else do I want to get to before we get to uh, this? Oh, yeah, NCAA tournament getting started tonight as we record this at 547. NCAA tournament starting in about 25 minutes. Uh, Gonzaga and Arkansas in a Sweet 16 game. You got Duke and Texas Tech uh, later from San Francisco. Two other games as well. Uh, If you want to bet on those games, bet on the rest of the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight later this weekend, the uh, NBA as it winds down its regular season. Go to Brothrow, brothrow.com. It's uh, no juice, great way to save money over time. Bet with your friends at brothrow.com. Also, don't forget if you're coming in this weekend to Oxford, make sure that you make LB's Meat Market your stop. To stock up, uh, if you're heading home, stock up with the freshest meats. If you've got a place here that uh, it's difficult sometimes to get a restaurant reservation in Oxford, if you want to get Uh, The freshest cuts of meat, celebrate uh, before the game, after the game, over the course of the weekend. Go to LB's, 2008 University Avenue in Oxford, right across from Kroger. But there's no reason to go to Kroger except to use it as a landmark. Go to LB's, the freshest cuts of beef, pork, chicken, seafood, great sausages, everything you're looking for. Phenomenal service from Greg Jones and all the people there at LB's Meat Market. Again, 2008 University Avenue in Oxford. So again, Ole Miss and Tennessee this weekend in Oxford. Big SEC weekend series. Tennessee three and zero in the league uh, after sweeping South Carolina. Ole Miss two and one in the league after taking two of three at Auburn. Two nationally ranked teams uh, headed at it. Two teams that have major postseason aspirations. So they'll get together this weekend six thirty seven and one thirty in Oxford. Chase Parham talked to Kendall Rogers of D1 Baseball about that series and more. Here's Chase. Kendall Rogers, D1Baseball.com. Joining us now, Kendall, obviously a big weekend in Oxford, Tennessee, and Ole Miss. 
Uh, two teams that have been pretty successful, both in the, uh, I guess, top five. You guys pull Ole Miss staying number one for the second week in a row. Um, it, it, obviously, when you got circled, just in general, Tennessee, um, I know it's a gaudy resume. They played the they played the Shriners Classic, won two out of three over there, beat up, t- beat up Baylor and Oklahoma pretty good on day two and three after losing to Texas. Um, for people maybe on my site who haven't followed them much, what's sort of the profile of this team and compared to even last year? I mean, it feels like they really have still taken on Vitello's kind of attitude and personality. Yeah, man, it's really it's really interesting. Um, you know, I think when you look back at Tennessee last year, you know, we knew them for, you know, the kind of the the pimp jobs of the home runs. We knew them for the just the power, the versatility top to bottom that lineup. Uh, and then you look at the, the, you know, the pitching staff with Chad Dallas and those guys. And they lost a couple of those kids. But, you know, I think the biggest thing when I look at Tennessee is you're, you're right. They've kind of kept that that personality going. They've kind of kept that chip on their shoulder going. They're not they're not satisfied. Like they still feel like they have unfinished business. And so, you know, that's the first thing I noticed about them at Shriners a few weeks ago. Uh, the next thing is a big thing for them, and we'll talk about the offense in a second, but the big thing for them right now is just their pitching has been excellent. And, you know, I think coming into the season, I actually felt good, Chase, about their bullpen. I, I thought when you looked at the return of Kirby Cannell, Camden Sewell, Redmond Walsh, those are three really old arms. So I actually felt good about their bullpen, you know, but they're getting other other guys to step up. Will Mabry's been solid. Mark McLaughlin's been really good for the ten, for the balls out of the bullpen. And then when you kind of you kind of combine that with the job that Drew Beam and Chase Burns are doing in the week rotation. I'll tell you right now, Chase Burns is one of the best freshman pitchers I've ever seen. You know, I saw him pitch at the time, number one Texas at Shriners. You know, like you and I, like if we were in that position, we'd be nervous as hell. And he went out there and he was 95, 98. Just a, just a hammer, 86, 89 an hour cutter, uh, threw in a couple of change-ups, and he looked outstanding. And then on Sunday uh, that weekend, Drew Beam went out there and was 94, 95 with nasty stuff, with a great frame. And then you mix in Chase Dollander, the transfer from Georgia Southern, who started to get a little bit better. The weekend I saw him, his, his uh, command wasn't very good. But, you know, he's a guy that's in the mid-90s with, with a pretty good arm. So you're talking about a team that, at least right now, they're very confident in the week in rotation. They've got a lot of options in the bullpen. And then offensively, you know, when you look at this team top to bottom, I think that's going to stand out to them about you is, you know, they, they could roll out a brand new lineup of three new guys every day. And like, they're not going to skip a beat, you know, like the weekend I saw him, Christian Scott, Christian Moore, uh, you know, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the kid's name uh, off the top of my head, but the Seth Stevenson, Oh, Blake Burke was when I was thinking of Blake Burke came off the bench in the last game at Shriners and hit a ball in the second deck. I mean, they're just really, really balanced. And when you when you combine that with, you know, Trey Lipscomb's having a breakout season, you know, Drew Gilbert obviously is having a, another powerful season. Jared Dickey's been fantastic. I think he's still hitting well over 400. They're just a really good offensive team. And I, and I would, you know, and I would be honest here, Tennessee's really good. Um, I, I, would, I would argue that on a one-weekend look, it's hard to imagine a better team in college baseball. Tennessee is really good. It's a good thing that series in Oxford this weekend because I think that does equalize that series a little bit. I think if it was in, if it was in Knoxville, I think we'd all kind of agree uh, it might not go great for the for the Rebs right now, but it's in Oxford and uh, it's going to be wild down there. Some of them miss this problem right now is just health. They look at TJ McCants coming out of the game Saturday against Auburn. He missed the midweek. Mike expects him to play this weekend, but Calvin Harris almost assuredly still going to be out. Kevin Graham is definitely out for a few more weeks from that yeah. uh, that, that, that that wrist thumb injury that he is a. Uh, that he's had so Ole Miss is banged up offensively a little bit. I want to I want to mention Burns specifically because he has he's been so damn impressive. What is what what is the profile? What what is what is Ole Miss going to see from this kid on Friday? 
Yeah, the biggest thing with with him, he's got a great frame. I mean, I, I, I have to look at the number, but I want to say he's six three, six four, about two twenty five. Like he has no business being in college baseball. Like he's just one of those kids that had a big number. He wanted to play college baseball, so this is where he's at. He's in Knoxville, and you know, was it really interesting about Chase to kind of see his evolution? Is when you look back at fall workouts when I talked to Tony Vitello, it was kind of one of those deals like Chase Burns threw really hard. That that that. That's what we knew, and the the command in the fall wasn't great. And so the question mark with Chase kind of coming in the season was, you know, we know that he has a big time arm, but can he command it? And so far this year, he's done a really nice job. You're talking about a guy with 34 strikeouts, nine walks, and I think it's 26 and two thirds innings. Mm-hmm. Uh, teams are hitting 152 against him. That's pretty good for a freshman. You could really make the argument right now that him or Carter Holton, another freshman out of the volunteer state are the two top freshman pitchers and maybe the two top freshmen in college baseball right now. Those guys have been, those guys to me have been like the pitching version of what Jacob Gonzalez was positionally last year. What is the deal with Tidwell? Where is he kind of at right now with his situation? So that's a scary thing about Tennessee is, you know, they asked Tony actually yesterday, the media availability about Tidwell. And he had told me at Shriners a few weeks ago, he's definitely coming back. And, you know, Tony's one of those guys that like if a, if a kid's not definitely coming back, he's, he's, you know, he's not just going to say he's coming back. Like he's not going to be deceiving about it. And he said at the time, I think he's going to come back. It, it's going to be a little bit longer, but he's going to come back. And, you know, he announced yesterday that Tidwell's on track to come back in two or three weeks. So, I mean, Again, if this offense continues at this rate, we know they have the bullpen, and let's say Burns and Beam continue. And, oh, by the way, Chase Dollander ends up being your Tuesday guy or or Drew Beam Beam ends up being your Tuesday guy with Blade Tidwell in the rotation. I mean, that's an insanely loaded team. And we're not even talking about Seth Halverson, the Missouri transfer who's supposed to come back, who was Missouri's Friday guy last year, and he's hurt. So – I mean, he's another 93 to 95 arm with a with a nasty slider. And so they they would then have starting options of Drew Beam, Tidwell, Chase Burns, Chase Dollander, Seth Halverson. I mean, that's really good. I know it's a lot of – I know some in-state guys. I know there's a little whatever. But, you know, we don't think of Tennessee necessarily as, you know, LSU or Vanderbilt from a recruiting standpoint. I mean, they have a little more of a lottery help than Ole Miss or, or Mississippi State – or not Mississippi State anymore, but Ole Miss does – What's allowed him to sort of accumulate this this quickly in Knoxville? I mean, what's happened to get here for Tennessee and Vitello? Well, the thing about Tony, uh, and to give him a lot of credit, is Tony was kind of a self-made guy when he was at Missouri. His dad's like a legendary high school coach. He knows exactly what's needed as a coach. And when you combine kind of that natural recruiting acumen with the coaching knowledge, that's a great combination. You know, he's got a really good staff. Josh Elander learned under Jim Schlossnagel. TCU is a player. Frank Anderson has been one of the top pitching coaches in college baseball, has learned under Augie Garrido. Larry Hayes at Texas Tech, um, you know, he's a head coach at Oklahoma State. So he kind of knows all the different aspects of a program. So you've got a staff that's well-versed in, on the coaching side and on the recruiting side. And the thing about Tennessee is, like, their team has taken on this persona. Like, they, they go after a certain kid. They go after a kid, whether he's ultra talented or he needs to be developed. They go after a kid that has something to prove, like he has a bone to pick with somebody, you know, like he's got a chip on his shoulder. And the best comparison I can make is kind of old school Cal State Fullerton. Um, and if you remember those old school Fullerton teams, I mean, when you went and played them, it was like you're going to a boxing match. Like, you know, like they, they, you know, it's like I told somebody the other day, they're like, Tennessee's going to roll into Swayze with their chest bumped out, probably smack talking the fans in the outfield. Well, that's just the kind of the persona they have. They're not, they're not bad kids, but like 
they feel like the world disrespects them, like the world doesn't think they're, you know, they're as good as Ole Miss or State or LSU. And it so, reminds me of Louisville a little bit when Dan's had really good teams. Absolutely, yeah. And it reminds me of Louisville now. I mean, Louisville's a really, really physical offensive team. And when they hit home runs, they enjoy it. And so, you know, I, I get it. Like opposing fans don't like it. But I tell you what, the formula works. And Tony's a really, really good recruiter. What's your 10,000 feet view of Ole Miss at this point? Uh, I think they're a team that, especially when they get Kevin back, I, I, I just think Kevin, when you look at the number of at-bats he's had in that league, that's just such an experienced, powerful piece to have in that lineup. I think once they get him back, you know, they, they've been hitting. But, like, once they get him back, that kind of finalizes everything offensively. I think the big thing for me is just how the starting rotation evolves. You know, for instance, right now, I mean, if you just looked at a piece of paper, you'd go, man, Tennessee – uh, advantage Chase Burns, Tennessee, advantage Drew Beam, and, you know, you could go either way on probably Dollander. But, like, that's the thing about Ole Miss is, like, if they want want to get to Omaha, compete for a national championship, um, they need to con- – the, the rotation is going to have to be better. Like, John Gaddis has to continue to get better. Derek Diamond, and, you know, you kind of alluded to earlier about, you know, the offseason stuff, but he's one of those guys that, you know, I've seen him really, really good. For them to meet their goals, he's going to have to be really, really good. And I don't know, you know, how Laf or Bianco kind of tap into that and get that out of him. Maybe a series like this weekend is what can kind of get that out of him. And so I think, I think to me, I think Derek Diamond's like the X factor. Like he, when he's on, he's got the best stuff of anybody in this rotation on the staff by far. He's the big key for me. Twitter loves him. This Joyce kid for Tennessee. Is there any pitchability with this 103 mile an hour fastball? You know, it's really funny that I actually mentioned all these arms and didn't mention the guy that throws 104. <laughs> but, you know, so it's interesting. I was talking to Tony about this a while back. And the thing about Joyce is they're, they're trying to just get him to learn how to pitch. So, you know, he's always been one of those guys that throws 104, 101, 102, 103, but, like, he's never had any pitchability. But, like, when they put him in there this year, like, it, there's been times that he's actually able to throw strikes with, like, two pitches. Like, he also has a slider. And so, you know, right now I think he has, you know, three walks and seven innings. And, you know, Tony doesn't doesn't give him a, a big leash. Like, if, if he starts at a count 3-0, like, Tony will not hesitate. He'll walk out there and take the ball from him. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's one of those things, like, they know exactly what they're going to get in that first batter. And if he kind of gets rolling, they keep him in there. But I tell you what – it, I mean, it is firm. I mean, it's a legit. I saw him at Shriners, you know, on on their trackman system, on my radar gun. It's legitimately 100 to 103. It feels like you're uh, picking the balls to take two this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the balls to take two out of three, but it's it's a, it's a tough one because I do think, you know, I do think Swayze's an equalizer. You know, when that place is rocking – when that place is packed in the outfield, especially with a team as talented as Ole Miss is, they're a hard team to beat. And, you know, I, I wonder how Dolan or not Dolan there. Well, you can throw Dolan in there, but I wonder how Burns and Beam are going to handle that atmosphere. You know, the thing about it, when they went to Shriners, like Texas had a big crowd there, but it wasn't Swayze on a Saturday afternoon. So it's going to be a little different. I like Tennessee, but would a, would an Ole Miss series victory surprise me? Not in the least. I mean, they are number one in the country. A little bit of a quick lightning round. You like, uh, end of the day, Vanderbilt or Arkansas more? I like Vanderbilt right now. I think Vanderbilt has a little bit more upside on the mound as of right now. Arkansas is getting better. Jackson Wiggins, keep an eye on him. Uh, he's been really good. Of course, we remember him last year hitting 98. Kind of like you were talking about with Joyce. You weren't always real sure where Jackson was going to throw it, but he's finally starting to show command again. So keep an eye on him. Uh, Connor Nolan's been big for the Hogs as well. 
Uh, I, th- I just think Vanderbilt, when you look at a position group, Davis Diaz, another freshman, has been really good. Dom Keegan's been outstanding. I want to say Dom's hitting well over 400. Carter Young's healthy and starting to figure it out again at the shortstop position. Then you have Enrique Bradfield to go with that pitching staff and McIlvain, and of course, Carter Holton. So uh, I like where Vandy's at. Vandy hasn't lost since uh, like the second day of the season. So, uh, or no, they, they lost a series finale. So they haven't lost since the third day of the season. Uh, so we'll see what happens kind of moving forward. What is sort of your guess on where state ends up at this point? Can they fix this at all, or is it just kind of what it is? I mean, until uh, I'm proven otherwise, I mean, it kind of is what it is, right? Like the same yeah. the same issues they had opening weekend are the same issues they have now. And that was even with Landon Healthy uh, opening weekend. And so I'd say without Landon Sims, you know, the thing about – like I love, love Preston Johnson as a reliever. I have concerns about Preston Johnson as a starting pitcher long-term. Like he looked pretty good for six innings the other day against Georgia. But, like, you're asking that guy to go out there and be Landon Sims, and I don't think he's Landon Sims. And so uh, they're going to have to get it done offensively, and they did on Sunday against Georgia. We'll see if that was kind of the the spark they needed. But, I mean, I think I think right now I think Mississippi State's going to be one of those teams that's going to be fighting just to get in the, in the tournament. And if they can get in the tournament, I mean, they have the players to make a run. LSU better or worse or is expected so far? Oh, by far worse. Um, I still think they're really offensive, but – they make entirely too many pitching changes. By the way, when Ole Miss plays them, it's going to drive you crazy. They will change pitchers seven or eight times guaranteed. Um, and the other thing is they're playing bad defense. Um, they're making errors on routine plays. They're not covering bases right. Like there's a play at Shriners where they didn't cover third when the runner was running a third on like a grounder. Like just really stupid stuff. And so until they figure that out, which they have to go to Gainesville this weekend, that's a bad place to figure yourself out. Um I'm really down on them. I think they're going to be really offensive. They have a lot, a lot of question marks. I mean, they should have gotten swept last week. A&M left 15 guys on base mm-hmm. in the series finale, and LSU needed a walk-off to win it. Can you make the argument that uh, past Arkansas and Tennessee, A&M is maybe Ole Miss's toughest series? They don't play Florida, Georgia, or Vanderbilt. Ask me – you're gonna, you maybe ask me about A&M in a couple of weeks. Um, A&M early in the season was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, Nate Yeske, their pitching coach who came from Arizona and obviously sure. did a great job at Oregon State. Like, he's done a really good job of that rotation, but their bullpen is a disaster at times. Like, they just – it's not like they're they're not talented. They just have – they have a lot of guys that, that are unproven, a lot of young guys are relying on. And as you well know, you've been covering this a long time. When you've got young guys out there coming out of the bullpen to, you know, quell a rally, it doesn't always go well. So, they are doing a lot better offensively. Um, they – I mean, they not the cover off the ball at LSU – We'll find out this weekend against Auburn. Who, you know, Auburn's not bad. They're not great, but they're not terrible. We'll mm-hmm. find out this weekend against Auburn. Was the LSU series the way they hit an aberration, or are they starting to kind of figure them things out? The big thing to watch with them, and he'll be back by the time Ole Miss plays them. But Trevor Werner, who's off to just a torrid start for them offensively, he's been on the shelf for a few weeks with a hammock bone injury. Uh, he's supposed to come back in, I think, a couple of weeks. I want to say Ole Miss plays them in late April, right? They do. Yeah. And yeah, so they'll see him. Last thing, I know you got to go Ole Miss sure. gets Tennessee, and then they get Alabama, Kentucky to kind of get healthy no matter what happens this weekend before a trip to South Carolina. What are we making of the Gamecocks? Tennessee whipped them pretty good, but they did get Texas a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I think the Texas deal was a fa- uh, like a case of like the first weekend that Texas didn't have Tanner Witt, and they got him on a doubleheader. I think that's what it all boiled down to. Matthew Becker did throw really well for them that day. He is a talented young arm for, for the Gamecocks. So with him and Will Sanders, if you don't show up, they can't beat you in a series. But I actually, you know, outside of this weekend, I actually kind of like Ole Miss's schedule the way it sets up the next few weeks. Even if they have a bad weekend against Tennessee, like it sets up very well to kind of quickly rebound. 
Kendall, appreciate it as always. Another you got time. it, buddy. And, uh, go get your kid. Appreciate it, buddy. You got it. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it, Chase. Uh-huh. That was Kendall Rogers, Chase Parham. Again, Ole Miss, Tennessee this weekend, 637 and 130 at uh, Swayze, the Balls, the Rebels. A big baseball series. We'll, Chase will be covering it throughout the weekend. We'll talk about it on Monday on the Oxford Exxon podcast. Uh, earlier this week, Ole Miss had its pro day. Matt Corral threw for the first time in front of scouts, in front of NFL execs, four head coaches, 71, 72 NFL reps, 31 teams, everyone but the Los Angeles Rams represented in Oxford. All eyes on uh, Matt Corral, Sam Williams, Jerry and Ely, Snoop Connor, and the rest of the pro day group. Talked about that and a lot more of NFL topics with Neil Stratton of Inside the League based out of Houston. Here's Neil. My longtime friend, Neil Stratton of Inside the League, kind enough to uh, literally kind of hop off the road and spend some time with us here today. Uh, Neil, first, thanks for spending some time with us. How you been? I'm good, man. Always a pleasure. Honored to be here. Um, And, you know, what's better than talking football with a buddy, right? That's right. All right, let's start here. I just we're we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. I just got back from uh, Ole Miss's pro day. A lot of eyes on Matt Corral. So we'll kind of start there. I know there's some other guys that I want to get your thoughts on, but we'll start with Matt. Got hurt in the Sugar Bowl. Didn't throw at the combine. Um, from just watching him right in front of me a little while ago, I mean the the he hasn't lost the arm strength. It looks like he's put a little weight on. He looked. Looked healthy. Uh, Mike Tomlin was there watching him pretty closely. Uh, Matt Rule was watching pretty closely. There were other guys there as well, four NFL head coaches. What are kind of your thoughts about where Matt Corral is here about a month out from the draft? Well, Neil, I I think in five years, Corral is the best quarterback in this class. And um, that's no disrespect to Malik Willis. That's no disrespect to uh, the Panthers, the pick quarterback. I just think that his body of work has been very impressive. He's done it in the SEC. He's got the mobility that I think most teams are looking for now. Uh, he's not, you know, 6'5 or whatever, but I don't think that matters anymore, quite frankly. And if his ankle's good or his leg or – I can't remember. What was it exactly he hurt? It was ankle. It was his ankle. Yeah, yeah. It's okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was watching that game, and I was heartbroken that he got hurt because I really was looking uh, for him to really – have a big performance, but um, I think he's a, I think he's got a lot going for him. And I think that, you know, if everything checks out, he's a top, top half of the, of the round player in a draft where, you know, I don't think any NFL teams feel like I got to have this quarterback or that quarterback, but because of the inflation, that's part of the position and the rules now that are so laden towards the offense, I think you've got to make investments for players like that. And so I think he's going to, I think he's going to be really happy on draft day. What do you think? And this is, I'm like you, I don't want to say anything that comes across as an insult to Malik Willis, who seems like a perfectly nice guy and yeah, got, a, yeah. got a big body and a big arm and he's athletic and all that. But, but he, he didn't, he didn't do it at the sec level, the way that Corral did. Why do you think the so many in the media, at least at this point are as kind of infatuated with Willis as they are almost, to Corral's detriment. I don't know that it really matters at the end of the day with the media thinks. Right. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. But but why do you think that is? Right. there's such an infatuation with, with Malik Willis? I think there are a couple of reasons. I think, number one, I think everyone's looking for that guy that to kind of come out of nowhere and be, uh, you know, a, a future star. And 
and Liberty is a, you know, it's an FBS program, but it's not Alabama or Pitt or LSU or whatever. It's not a program that is instantly recognizable as a force. And so to some degree, I think he's got that a little bit of underdog to him. Um, I think that's one factor. I think the other is that he had a really nice senior bowl. And I think he was the quarterback that really stepped forward the most of anyone that was there based on the conversations that I had. And I think in a draft where everyone's kind of waiting for someone to ascend, that's as good of a coronation as you're going to get. I don't think that the combine necessarily was a place where anyone really asserted themselves and, you know, we're still kind of getting the returns back from the pro days, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's really those, I think his candidacy as a, as a top quarterback, if he turns out to be the first one selected, kind of rests on those two, uh, on the shoulders of those two points, if you ask me. Kenny Pickett from Pitt had a really good senior bowl as well. And that is such a big game down there, especially for quarterbacks. They get to work with an NFL uh, coaching staff for a week and everyone's watching and you're running NFL practices and that kind of thing. How big of a deal is the whole hand size thing with him? What do you expect there? You wa- you watched him in Mobile. You've seen him other places. What do you think of him? I mean, I'm sick of hearing about it. Um, it what's it, What's been interesting to me, and I, I don't mean to evade your question, has been the gamesmanship, not getting his hands measured in Mobile and, you know, the big, and, and then in the senior, I mean, the combine. And now uh, it was it was almost like headlines of how what size his hands were. Yeah, Drew Brees didn't have very big hands. He had a pretty nice career, and um, I think it's been overblown. But I guess you can never be too cautious. And everyone's looking for that one dig on the top players. And when you've got as much riding on this, and you're trying to basically defend your candidacy as the top quarterback in the draft, I guess. He wanted to be, you know, to, to, to go the extra mile, at least his management team did. And so, um, I don't know. I, I think, <laughs> I don't know if an NFL team really, their, their, their opinion on him is going to hinge on his hand size per se, but it is part of the whole draft picture. And so I guess nothing's off the table anymore. You called it the underwear Olympics and like, I love the league and you've made a living off of, of, uh, working with the league and agents and stuff, but this deal where the, the, the bowls end roughly the 10th of January, and it's, it's a three and a half month drawn out process. How many NFL teams, these are smart people. Some of them, how many of them just end up making mistakes based on the underwear Olympics of these pro days and stuff, because literally today, and and you're hearing this on Thursday. So on Wednesday at Ole Miss's pro day, I'm watching Jalen Jones who uh, I've covered now. I think Jalen was at Ole Miss for 12 years. I, I covered Jalen for, I don't know, five, six years. And, and he has his, he does it, runs his 40. My man has on a pair of essentially underwear and cleats. And I'm not knocking Jalen because if I looked like Jalen does, I would walk everywhere I went in underwear and tennis shoes, probably not cleats because that would make a lot of noise. But I might, I, hell, if I look like him, I might wear the cleats so that people heard me coming. I, I'd want, you know, if I had that body, I'd walk, I'd walk around. But my point sure. is, is that you're not going to play an NFL game in underwear and cleats. You're going to play in pads and a helmet and the whole deal. How many mistakes get made based on these pro days and the combine and workout warriors and stuff like that, as opposed to the old school, hey, I'm going to look at film. I'm going to see what this guy did on the football field and translate how that goes from Saturday to Sunday. You know, 
when I watch the, the draft broadcast, it drives me crazy because after the pick is made and Goodell's hugged the kid and all those kind of things, and they go back to the team headquarters and the headline is always, hey, you got your guy. And I always wonder, was that who you went into the draft warning or was that the guy that was left when you picked and you're like, well, I guess. Uh, to me, to answer your question, I think that these times are used to separate two very closely aligned players, you know, uh, on days one and two, especially days one and two. But in day three, I think teams are more apt to try to hit a home run. And so if you've got a guy who really blew up his workout, even if the film doesn't really match, if you've got a crusty old defensive lineman and you had a guy that just went out and ran a, a 4-6 at you know 275 or something and you really feel like we can turn this guy into something because he came from the, the Sun Belt and he only played defense one year, you know, that's when you're starting to to use those times more so. Um, and I and I think everyone's looking for that guy that could be a difference maker, could be a mismatch uh, kind of guy. And so to me, that's the way a wise team uses these times. Now, <laughs> I got to tell you, Neil, you talk to people just like I do. There's no two teams that do this exactly the same way. And I think that's part of what makes the draft fun. I mean, if it was all very rote and scientific and all those kinds of things, there wouldn't be a lot of suspense to it. But because people do things differently, you know, um, that's what that's why we're all glued to the TV all day, you know, all evening, Friday and Thursday, and then all day Saturday. So, you know, pinning it down is hard to do, but I think generally you're looking, it's got a lot more importance later in the draft because you're trying to separate those guys that are kind of close, but may be lightning in a bottle, you know? I'm curious because you know this well, because you're part of the, you've, you've followed the draft process really closely over the last 20 years or so. When, when the Mike Tomlins and the, uh, Matt rules, Arthur Smith's naming the guys who are here today, Mike McCarthy, when those guys bring these quarterbacks in, right, they bring in Pickett and they bring in Willis and they bring in corral. We'll just leave it at those three. Maybe they bring in Sam Howell, whatever the case is. And they have, they, they sit down with them. They've seen them work out. Maybe they work them out or whatever, but those conversations, what are they looking for? Is it the guy that they can best relate to? Is it the guy that they, that, that picks things up quicker, that understands what they're looking at defensively fastest? What is what is it that separates the, the mental part? I ask that because one of the knocks on, on Corral is, well, he's always played in a one-read system. You know, and, and it, you look at college football, a lot of it is one-read systems. It's, you sure. know, it's a totally different game. You're trying to go fast and, and all of that. It's different than it is in the NFL. How, and I know I just threw a lot at you, but when they sit down with those guys, how do they differentiate them? How do they ultimately come, you know, to say, hey, this is the guy that we're going to use a first round draft choice on? Leadership. I, I mean, I, I, that's the one thing that I think you don't hear a lot from the punditry and from, you know, the, the draft Knicks and that kind of thing. They don't talk. And, and I think that, that still is a highly valued trait in NFL locker rooms and in NFL war rooms and on draft day, I think it's got a lot to, to do with how is the team going to relate to this guy? Are they going to follow him? Um, you know, is he going to mesh with everybody there? Is he going to mesh with our veterans? You know, are our veterans going to want to follow him? And, you know, 
it's almost impossible to put a number on that. But I think, you know, when I, from, from what I have seen and from what I hear from people is they're looking for that thing. And if they don't have it, you can fall. Um, I think the quarterback out of UCLA, whose name escaped me, that was drafted, you know, the same year as Josh Allen and Baker Mayfield and all those guys. Um, and I think he was, was a young one year with the Cardinals. And then he went to the Dolphins for a while. I cannot remember what his name is, but I think that teams gave up on him quickly because he lacked the leadership they were looking for. He's kind of more of a bookish kind of guy was trying to kind of steer where he wanted to go in the draft. And he really wasn't that kind of player. I'm so angry that I can't remember. Oh, what I, now I know who you're talking about and I can't think of his name either, which is probably a sign that his NFL career wasn't very good that he just, yeah, well, that's, that's definitely true because he really bounced around quickly, but, but, what really surprised me is how quickly teams gave up on it. And I think that it had to do with that quality that was lacking. And so I think, you know, I don't think Baker Mayfield goes number one overall, if not for that leadership quality. Now you can argue whether or not that was, it was dumb to value that the way that they did, but I still think it's important. And I think that's really what separates a draft where we're going to see probably more quarterbacks go earlier than we should because of the rules but as far as which ones go higher than others, I think it's got a lot to do with that. You know, a lot of people over the last couple of years have made a lot of, of about Matt Corral's maturation. And, and he absolutely has matured a lot over the last two and a half years or so at Ole Miss. Another guy who has is Sam Williams. If you had asked me two years ago what's going to happen with Sam Williams, I'd have been like, man, he's going to get himself in trouble. It's, this is not going to end well. And it's been the exact opposite of that. I mean, literally – just Wednesday afternoon, I was talking to Sam Williams. He was holding his son. He's, it's like he's a different person. And uh, the lights have also come on for him as a football player. He looks incredible. He can get off the edge. He had a great senior season at Ole Miss. Um, he sounds like he's worked his way into maybe the second round. And I'm curious when NFL teams, I know you can't speak for all 32 NFL teams, but when they look at a guy that, had a little bit of a checkered past, appears to have really turned the corner and, and has the skill set you're looking for in the NFL. He can handle the run. He can get to the quarterback. Do they throw some of the past stuff away, or does that still kind of fester and, and, and haunt a little bit close to the draft? Neil, there were a couple of teams that I know of that had him off their board before the senior year, senior year started, okay? Um, and we don't have to run down the issues that he had, but they were real. I think he made a, a wise choice. He's got two things going for him. Um, I think he made a wise choice with his choice on representation. He's with Sports Trust. You probably know Pat Dye. Um, I think Pat's very well respected. And I think he, when he speaks, I think a lot of people listen. I think that helps. But number two, <laughs> much more importantly, he plays an impact position. If you find a pass rusher and maybe he's got a few spots on him, but if he's an impact player and he can step right in and, be a rotational guy for you that can really pressure the passer. You're gonna take. You're gonna roll the dice on it. That's all there is to it. If he's an off-ball linebacker or a guard or you know fullback or something, no way he gets drafted. As it is, you're right. Maybe he's a day two guy because he plays a very important position. I mean, cornerback, left tackle, defensive end, quarterback, maybe a wide receiver. Those are the places where you roll the dice these days. And uh, he happens to play one of those positions, so I think he could have a very uh, a good experience on draft day. Um, 
Just real quick on some of the other Ole Miss guys. Uh, Jerry and Ely, I think, has a chance to go late day two, early day three. And then after that, it's it's about fit and whether a, a organization fell in love with a guy, whether it's Snoop Connor or, or Chance Campbell or whoever the case may be. Any Ole Miss guys kind of stick out in your mind as guys that you think could surprise a little bit from what you've seen? You know, we talked a little bit about, about Dontario Drummond before we got on here, and yeah. I think he's an interesting player. I know he didn't light the lamp as far as his 40, but uh, I think he's got ability. I know there are a lot of people that were excited about him um, kind of before the whole draft process started. I think a team that's established needs a good, a big kind of pass catcher that can move the chains and work between the hashes. Um, could He could surprise, despite the fact that, again, he didn't, he wasn't lightning on the 40, but, uh, you know, he's a player that could be interesting. I, uh, he's the one that kind of jumps off the page to me just because of his length and his size and those kinds of things. Uh, real quick, before I let you go, let's talk some NFL quarterback NFL moves today. Uh, over the last few days, I should say on Wednesday, Tyreek Hill gets traded from Kansas city to Miami. Feels like that's kind of okay to, you've got your weapons. It's now or never a little bit. Is that, is that fair? Well, Neil, I mean, to me, if there's anything that the last Super Bowl proved, it's that you've got to have a, an offense that can go, and, and it starts with your quarterback. Now, let's set two aside for a second. They've fought, they have they went out and got a quality left tackle. He'll probably only play about a half season, but he, they'll be good games when he plays. And then they went out and got an impact wide receiver in a 24-hour period. At this point, if Tua doesn't make it happen, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Right. But credit the credit the Dolphins for going out and finding, you know, they picked an apple off the Kyle Shanahan tree, and I think that's a wise move. They've got two impact receivers now, and they've got a quality left tackle who has trouble staying healthy, but he's really good when he plays. It's now or never time for Tua. There are no excuses left for Tua. I don't know what the answer is, and I haven't watched him enough to really have formed an opinion on him. Everyone was excited about him coming out of the draft, obviously. The ability is there, but so far he just hasn't really put it all together. I think we'll know very soon. And, and the way it is now, Neil, there's no shelf life for quarterbacks anymore. Either you hit almost instantly or they move on. And, again, I think it's a byproduct of where the rules are now and the way how offense kind of rules the game and all those kinds of things. If you want to compete, you've got to have a guy that you know is going to be able to make plays for you on Sunday and not just be a game manager and – We'll find out very soon if Tua is that guy or not in Miami. What does this mean for the Chiefs that they walked away from from Tyreek Hill? What does it What does it say about their window? I mean, they win a Super Bowl and then they get back to a Super Bowl and they get, I guess, upset for lack of a better word by the Bucks and then the Bengals beat them this year in Kansas City in the AFC title game. Is this a sign that that there's some alarm there and that they're trying to move in a different direction, or is is this just hey we had to get value for Tyreek Hill? Well. It's a lot of money spent on a wide receiver. Ask the Saints, you know, what their return on investment has been for Michael Thomas. That's a good point. That's number one. And number two, I think it's a reflection of this draft class. I mean, there's depth pretty much going down the fourth, fifth round with guys that could have been only back up. Because of the depth of this draft class in general, with the COVID year and all the players that stuck around that would not have otherwise stuck around, there's depth at a lot of positions, no more so than a wide receiver. So you're seeing guys that are going to go day three. That could easily have been day two guys in the past, maybe late day ones, that because of so many guys stacked there and the perception that I can find a receiver later, 
they're going to hang around and they're going to be, you know, quality players. I mean, you look at the, I think it was the, the 16 draft when, you know, I'm sorry, the 17 draft, Alvin Kamara, uh, the, the Minnesota running back went, um, the Packers got a running back deep, uh, late. It's, there's so many players that at that one position that were available and the same, I think, is going to be true for wide receivers in this draft. And I think the Chiefs were able to anticipate that. And that's kind of why they made this move. I know you're there in Houston. Deshaun Watson lands in, uh, in Cleveland. What did you think of that move for, for, uh, for the Browns? Well, they're paying a lot of money guaranteed to a guy that I think is a bit of a wild card. And, you know, look at, look at what OBJ did when he went to Cleveland. I mean, when he got there, he was looked at kind of a savior and it didn't end so well. Will it end that way in Cleveland? I don't know. I mean, I think to some degree Watson is going to have a halo for a while. We don't know how long he's going to be suspended. I think, I mean, the, the number I hear the most is six games. Yes, yeah, Um, So there are a lot of negatives, but at the same time, if you want to win, you've got to have a player like a Deshaun Watson. I mean, I'm a, as, as I've said many times on this, when I've been with you, I'm a Saints guy and I was all in for them to go get it because yeah. If you don't have an impact guy, it's you're really you're kind of competing for for second place to me. And uh, so I, I I really I congratulate the Browns on really going for it. Uh, the package was big, but I didn't think it was crazy big. I mean, I think the Niners gave up more for Trey Lance, and Trey Lance is a is a, is a wild card. I think Deshaun Watson is you know a pretty he's got a pretty promising future and a guy that not only is a good player, but man, he's still in the first half of his career. He may be in the first quarter of his career. Yeah. So I don't, I don't blame them for doing what they did. I think it was a risky move, and they're, they're taking a chance. At the same time, I think it's a chance they had to take. So Matt Ryan goes to, uh, to Indianapolis. You've got Russell Wilson in Denver. Uh, I give, the, give the NFL credit, man. I mean, they, they, they know how to spin the drama machine in, in the spring, <laughs> right, to keep everybody interested. Um, Baker Mayfield, as of this moment, doesn't really have a home. I, I, I guess he's Crazy. still with Cleveland, but that that's not tenable, right? There's no way that there's no way that Baker Mayfield shows up for camp in Cleveland, knowing that Deshaun Watson's there. What what happens with him? And is there one of those other guys that you think, hey, this is this change of scenery is going to really help? I would look at Seattle for Baker. Uh, they've got uh, a big fan of his in their front office uh, that was in Cleveland when he was drafted. And I think that they feel like if he's got a good running game and enough weapons that maybe he could rejuvenate. I mean, we kind of had a one year on one year off kind of career for Baker so far. And so maybe he's due for a year on. I don't know. I think he's an interesting player. And, and uh, I think an argument could be made that his best football is still ahead of him. I don't know where that winds up being. But like I say, I would keep an eye on the Seahawks. I think he's a possibility. Just, I mean, I think Russell Wilson was a steal for the Broncos. I like the moves that the Broncos have made under George Payton, who's, who's only been there for a year plus. Um, seems very wise, highly respected by people in the industry. I think, you know, obviously Wilson struggled with injuries last year, and he's not nearly as young as Deshaun Watson is, but I still think he's got some football left in him. And I think he was derided a little bit because he he was more or less running a campaign to get out of Seattle for the last few years. But I think that might've been a little bit overblown. I, I think Russell Wilson's a guy that is a leader. And I think that that matters. Um, I, I like Matt Ryan. I think a lot of there are a lot of detractors out there, 
but you're talking about a guy that when he had an offensive line and he had weapons, he's a pretty dangerous player. And Colts can know really run he, the ball too. I mean, he's got some help now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, absolutely. And, and I'm a big fan of what the Colts have done generally. I mean, I credit them, even though it was the turned out to be the wrong move. I credit them for going aggressively after Carson Wentz. I think there are a lot of, again, a lot of arguments to be made on his behalf when that trade was made, but going after Matt Ryan, I think it's a good move too. The only, the only issue is how long does it take for Matt Ryan to come in and learn that offense? I mean, Carson Wentz had a bit of a head start because of his uh, background uh, with the, the head coach there, but uh, Matt Ryan doesn't have that. Will he be able to really figure it out in time to make an impact? Because, I mean, I think you're kind of talking about a one-year proposition there. If, if he's not successful, they probably are looking around again and maybe even draft a quarterback this year. That certainly wouldn't be out, out, you know, out, out of the question. So, But I think he can have an impact there. I still think he's got some ability. Obviously not for long, but I think he can still have one or two big years there. All right, last thing. The Cincinnati Bengals come three minutes away or less. Maybe a, a bad call on third down. They're close to the end zone from, from being Super Bowl champs in Joe Burrow's second season. Uh, they, they dip back into the LSU pool. They get Lyle Collins uh, to step in and play tackle. They added a couple of really good interior linemen. Um, did that, you know, offensive line was the weakness. You saw that in the, throughout the playoffs, it, it almost cost them against the Titans It almost cost them against the chiefs. It did cost them against the Rams. Have they sufficiently addressed the offensive line to the point that they can get back and, and, uh, compete for another Super Bowl? I think that the talent is there. Um, you know, the offensive line is one position where it's, to me, it's the sum of the parts is a lot more than the individual uh, talents. And so the question will be is how quickly can they knit them together and really make them a cohesive unit? I think there's a good chance they will. And I think also that they can game plan around it until he really, till that offensive line really can hit on all cylinders, you know, and be smart about things. I like their chances. And again, I mean, I credit them for recognizing their weakness and really going out and improving it. The Chiefs did the same thing last year, obviously didn't want to get into the Super Bowl. But I do think that the Chiefs may have taken one step backward, but I think in the long run, they'll take two steps forward because they were aggressive about it. I think we don't know yet exactly if the if what the Bengals have done is going to be enough. I think it's a good start, though, and I'll be interested to see if they continue to address things in the draft. I, you know, there still are some – I think the jury's out on Jonah Williams as a tackle. I think the jury's still out on Jackson Carmen as a guard. But – these are guys that came in with good pedigrees and they're still young. And if they can come together in a way that at least keeps Burrow from not being under assault all the time, yeah. that's probably enough to really make the Bengals a team that has a future in the AFC as a consistent Super Bowl contender. It's the window. You go for it now, right? Because you've got, you've got Chase and, and uh, Burrow on rookie deals. This is the time that you can stack your kind of do what Seattle did when Russell Wilson was on his right. rookie deal. I mean, this is this is the window to go for it. Like if if you need a cornerback and Stephon Gilmore's there, you go get him. There, there's people that you can you know. This is this is the window because down the road, two three years, you know you're going to be paying Burrow. God only knows how much, and and probably Jamar Chase and maybe Joe Mixon and T Higgins, whatever the case may be. So mm -hmm. it, it, on one hand, you go, hey, this is this young team. We've got time. And on the other hand, you go, no, no, the window's now. Yeah. I mean, look at the Chiefs. Um, I don't think they trade Tyreek Hill if they didn't have to sign uh, Patrick Mahomes to all that money. Yeah. And Mahomes' first year, 
I think it, I, ha- I don't have this contract in front of me, but my, as I recall, the first year was kind of low, but now going into this year, his cap number starts getting pretty sizable. And so, you know, you've got the good news is you've got Patrick Mahomes. The bad news is you're going to have to really draft well to, to surround him with enough talent to make an impact. And, you know, again, they're going to, they're going to be looking for rookie deal help from the wide receiver core. When you've, but when you've got your quarterback on rookie deal, man, it really makes things a lot easier, especially when it's a guy as talented as Burrow. So I agree. I think that the window does close sooner now because of the economics of the NFL. It's a fascinating league. They know how to stay uh, in the headlines. They can use, like you said, the underwater, uh, not underwater, underwear Olympics <laughs> and turn it into uh, primetime programming. It's, it's remarkable. It's, they're the, no king. They're the king for a reason. Hey, uh, speaking of, I really appreciate your time. I always enjoy following your work. People who want to keep up with what's going on with you and, and the latest, how do they get in touch with you? Just find us on, um, on Twitter at, at Inside the League. You can find a, a link to sign up for our Friday wrap, which comes out on Fridays. If you're interested in the game behind the game, I encourage you to check it out. It'll come out at 730 Eastern every Friday. We talk about what's going on. This week we'll talk about um, – Maybe the other side of the David Ojabo, Ojabo, whatever, uh, injury. And I think there's a perception out there that scouts are cold and uncaring because of uh, the Bucky Brooks comment on Twitter. There's a lot more to that story than needs to be told, and we kind of are going to start telling that uh, on Friday. We also have a blog, which is Succeed in Football. If you're interested in how scouts get hired and how agents work and all those kind of things, you might check that out. Of course, the mothership is inside the league.com as well. Um, love to have anyone you can contact us button. If you have questions about the game, we try to be very responsive. DMs are open on Twitter as well. Neil, thanks again, as always. Uh, enjoy. I know you're busy, so uh, enjoy keeping up with the draft, and we'll maybe touch, t- hope, hopefully touch base with you closer to it. Sounds great, brother. Appreciate it. Always available. Love it. All right, buddy. Bye. That was Neil Stratton. As always, thanks for his time talking NFL's draft about a month away. Uh, Speaking of, we talked about the Atlanta Falcons, the Atlanta Braves, some SEC football here with Dan Matthews of 680 The Fan out of Atlanta. Here's Dan. My friend Dan Matthews, 680 The Fan in Atlanta, kind enough to uh, join us here. Dan, how are you? Oh, very well. How are we today? Man, I'm good. So we're taping this on Wednesday evening. Uh, people are going to see it on Thursday, so I always do that because people get confused on today, yesterday, all that stuff. Oh. But on Wednesday afternoon, I saw uh, the Falcons brass. Arthur Smith was here. I think a couple other guys were here as well. Uh, obviously, I'm sure they were watching a number of guys, but let's face it, all eyes were on Matt Corral, the Ole Miss quarterback. Uh, you obviously weren't here to see that, so I won't ask you about, hey, what would you think of, of Matt's performance? Mm-hmm. But instead, I'll go here. The Falcons make a move at quarterback. They trade uh, Matt Ryan, who'd been in Atlanta for, God, forever. Seems like he's headed to Indianapolis. So short-term and long-term, what's the Falcons' plan at quarterback now that Matty Ice is gone? Well, short-term, I think that it is probably Marcus Mariota, at least uh, in terms of the uh, what you got, in terms of what you don't. Um, and I know that Arthur Smith, uh, when the media met with them, it's funny you say, you know, you're talking about them being at uh, Ole Miss Pro Day. They had told us that as soon as we got off the, uh, the media call with them, they were heading to the airport and they were going to Oxford. And so they were going to be in Oxford on Wednesday. And then Thursday, I believe they were going to go watch Desmond Ritter. So long term, 
Uh, I almost wonder if there is a edict from a high there in the building in Flowery Branch, which is just outside of Atlanta, where the Falcons practice from uh, Arthur Blank. Uh, hey, find me a new quarterback, because for the last 14 years of life, life had been good. Life had been very good, where there's not every single NFL team that can look around and say, franchise guy, we got him, we got our quarterback, despite what some in the fan base might think of the guy. So they were living a pretty charmed life for a while. And I think that if nothing else, Arthur Smith, from what we saw last week with the Deshaun Watson flirtation, uh, that uh, it is very much um, a, a point of emphasis this uh, April in the draft for Terry Fontenot and his scouting and development staff to uh, find the next guy. And I know that there's a lot of people who say, well, don't do it this year because aside from a couple of guys, there's really nobody that can fit that role. Wait until next year when Bryce Young is out and C.J. Stroud is out and a handful of other guys are out for the draft. That That's when you want to capitalize on that. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do uh, come April. Such a gamble, you know, the whole wait for next year thing. It's like um, I'm a I'm a Thunder fan, the Oklahoma mm-hmm. City Thunder, you know, they're and they're uh, as we're as we're taping this, they're getting ready to play the Orlando Magic and nobody's playing. I mean, they are desperately trying to lose because they're trying to move up and people are like, sure. Well, can you tank another year? Because, you know, uh when Benyaya, when Benyana is out a year from now. And it's like it doesn't work like that. It's so hard to forecast what's going to happen to your team, much less the Mm -hmm. other teams for the better part of another season. Right. So you don't know exactly what's, what's going to happen. So you have to strike when you can, which leads to my question about the Falcons. If they go quarterback this year, do you get an early sense as to which one they like the most? Would they be willing to move up in the draft? That kind of thing. Do they like one of these guys enough to say, Hey, this is my guy. I'm going to go get him. Yeah, I haven't heard enough yet. I mean, I know that they were at uh, Malik Willis's pro day up at uh, Liberty, and a lot of people were singing his praises and and saying uh, how he looked. I hadn't had a chance to see uh, the one that you were at uh, on Wednesday uh, with uh, Matt Corral to uh, see how he looked. I know that there weren't any concerns with the ankle uh, after he heard it uh, in the Sugar Bowl, which didn't seem like there was going to be a lot of concerns with that. But um, he looks really healthy, by the way. There you go. There you go. I mean, that's that's what uh, the agents paying for you to go work out and. Florida or Arizona or California during this time. Uh, that's, you know, uh, that's, that's what it sets you up to be. It's the magic of the NFL is that they all, they all kind of work together, even though they're all trying to kill each other. It, mm-hmm. it was a 67 throw workout. And so much of it was rolling out, rolling to his left, rolling to his right. They're like, Hey, you're, if you've got an ankle problem, you're not going to hide it from us. Right. We're going to find out. And Matt's ankle appeared to be fine. I mean, and and the rest of his game has always been unquestioned, the quick release, the big arm, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, and and that's the thing is, I mean, I guess if nothing else, you're exactly right. I mean, there are no secrets when it comes to this time of the year. Everybody, you know, I mean, that's why the, the thing that cracks me up the most at pro days is when you see all the scouts circle around each other with their clipboards. All right, you know, you got four or five for this one. What did you get for six? All right, you know, what'd you get? You know, so you're exactly right. I mean, all the information, I guess they kind of feel like is uh, for everyone. But um, I I do get the sense that if nothing else, if they feel like that their guy is there or even if they have to move up now, here's the caveat with them. I I think we can agree that in the NFC South right now, there's a team in front of them that's drafting in front of them, the Carolina Panthers. They're going to want a quarterback as well. And I I think that that's going to be something that they have to weigh. Um, you know, just with how aggressive they've been and the amount of draft picks that the Falcons have, I believe as of right now, and I could be wrong, nine picks at, at this minute right now 
so they had shown under Thomas Dimitrov that they would be very aggressive, especially in the first rounds, trading up, not back. Um, we have not necessarily seen as much, you know, from the one draft of uh, Terry Fontenot. I think last year he kind of wanted to play it straight and then, you know, go from there and kind of feel out how the draft process is and then go. So maybe this year he will be a little bit more aggressive. But, um, you know, again, I, I can't help but think if Malik Willis is there because granted, too, here's the other thing. And some people can say money, 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 only care about money, only care about selling tickets. Arthur Blank needs to get a star player on this team. Because Kyle Pitts is a good enough player. He's not the star just yet. That's why they made such a strong push for Deshaun Watson, because of all the things off the field, Deshaun Watson could sell tickets. Yeah. Um, if if he was able to get what the ESPN story had said, too, about being able to get, I believe, Jarvis Landry and, and Leonard Fournette uh, to join up with him and, and come play with the Falcons. If indeed that had happened before the Cleveland Browns had come through with their massive contract offer, then that, that would have sold tickets. So a guy who played his high school ball here in the Atlanta area finished up at Roswell high school and has gone on to be a pretty big star at Liberty and somebody who at the senior bowl and now here uh, in, in his pro day circuit, uh, Malik Willis, that's somebody that I think if he's right there, it's going to be really tough for Arthur Blank to pass up. Was there disappointment in Atlanta when Watson went to Cleveland? Yes, there was. I mean, you know, there's such a fatalistic feeling amongst the fan base here uh, for all the teams that if anything remotely bad happens, it's got to be either A, it's Atlanta or Georgia sports, or now the newest one because we can't rely on curses anymore is the Braves winning the world title and the dogs winning the national I championship. Say, I mean, it's an yeah, embarrassment of riches right now. It, yeah. It, it sacrificed everything. So a charmed life that, uh, that, that uh, Braves and dog and, and, and uh, Atlanta and state of Georgia fans are living right now. Yeah. Cause I mean, come on, the Braves win the world series in a season where at the midway point, they're just sort of, meandering through the season and then and then Georgia points at a season gets it done wins it beats mm-hmm. Nick Saban all that stuff come on I mean yeah curses we'll take it yeah yeah I would think so um all right let's switch to the Braves real quick I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts um they win a world series and uh do it in a season where Ronald Acuna goes down with a knee injury and and at the time when that injury happened I thought well they're done it's mm. they're gonna sell and they didn't. They bought. They went out and got um, Jorge Soler and Jack Peterson. And it really, the whole thing just sort of came together. It just got it caught fire. It was kind of like magic, sort of a little bit. And Freddie Freeman was the face of that team um, for the better part of what a decade, I guess. I mean, mm. Freddie Freeman was Mr. Brave. Oh, yeah. Tell me from your perspective kind of what went down and then what has the reaction been in Atlanta to Freddie Freeman leaving for Los Angeles and the Braves trading for Matt Olson and giving him an eight-year deal? Yeah, I mean, you know, just from everything that happened. So the deal went down with Matt Olson last Monday Mm -hmm. and we were on the air when it happened, broke the news. Uh, Shay Langoliers and Kristen Pache and the the package that went to uh, Oakland for uh, Matt Olson. So, of course, when that happened, immediately we started taking calls on the air of goodbye, Freddie Freeman, because we knew that's exactly what it was. You're not going to give him the money that it sounds like he is commanding and eventually what he got from the Los Angeles Dodgers to platoon at first base and to be at DH. That's just irresponsible. You're not going to do that. So 
uh, when that happened. I mean, you saw the reaction of Alex Anthopoulos down there. I mean, I really do think that that was a genuine response of this is a tough day, um, you know, that we didn't necessarily want to be in this spot. Um, the players, when I was down there, the, the clubhouse seemed the same. And I was down in Northport where the Braves are for spring training. The clubhouse seemed loose, relaxed, genuine, the way that it had been uh, really a couple of years before when, when we were able to be in the clubhouse. I mean, this is the first time, you know, granted, you know, off topic, we've been able to uh, be around these guys in person again and, and be in the clubhouse. So I, I did not sense any, you know, woe is us, this sucks. And especially too, when he signed with the Dodgers, it still seemed like, Hey, they got a good club. We got a good club. Let's see what happens if we face each other in October. Um, you know, but as the fan base though, it's really kind of funny, Neil, because in the age of Twitter, and granted, I, I get it, not everybody's on Twitter. And of course, Twitter is going to get the worst of the worst reactions. I mean, no matter if yes. everybody is universally liked, a bot is going to come out and say, you suck, all those different things. You had a lot of people who were saying Freddie chose money over a legacy in Atlanta. And a lot of people who were pretty upset with them about that. Um, I caution those people all the time that Freddie signed a pretty long-term deal. Now, granted, it was coming out of, you know, the arbitration and, and everything. So he was getting quite a pay raise. Don't feel bad for the guy. But he re-upped back at the beginning of his career when John Coppolella in the front office were not making any bones about it. We ain't going to win for a while. This is going to be a few years of us selling off players and building up our farm system and getting ourselves in position to have 2021 be eventually what it was. So I think that there was probably a majority of the fan base that had said, Hey man, go get your money. We hope it's here in Atlanta, but if it's not go get it. You had some of the fan base, good riddance. You're selfish. You want the money. You wanted to go to LA, New York, all these places all along. So there was that as well. He's from um, Southern California. There was right. always that belief that maybe he would want to go back there. I, right. I'm sentimental as a sports fan. I, I, mm -hmm. I try not to be because I know it's a business and we work in the business and we get it. Sure, sure. But man, you know, you you loved, I always loved the idea of Anthony Rizzo being a Cub for 18 years and, and right. walking away and, you know, <clears throat> Chris Bryant. And and, and you, you love the idea of, of a Freddie Freeman being a brave his entire mm -hmm. career, but it's just not the Derek Jeter career is not common. It's not realistic. And in today's economics and such, you know, what's, what's interesting. And I want to get your thoughts here is I yeah. thought Anthopolis did the right thing ultimately by, Hey, we'll give you five years mm -hmm. at the end of that contract. We're probably going to have a little regret, but you've done a lot for us and you're the face of the franchise and all that by not buckling and just giving him what he wanted. He ultimately got a better deal with a younger player who puts up very similar numbers in Olsen. Well, I think, and, and that's it, to a great point there, Neil, is that if he goes ahead and caves in to Scott Boris and the contract demands that they want, then you probably don't have Kenley Jansen here right now. You might not have Eddie Rosario back uh, on a two-year deal and they made a run at Jorge Soler. Jorge Soler eventually got more money from the Miami Marlins. So it worked out well for him in, in that regard. So, you know, I, I think that what they were able to parlay this into has, again, the majority of Braves fans ecstatic about it. A couple of things that I want to point 
the listeners in in this case, uh, the viewers of me and you uh, on on uh, today's show too, is number one, we had Chipper Jones on our afternoon show on 6A The Fan on Friday. And he talked about this. And anybody that knows the relationship between Chipper and Freddie, it's as close as can be. And that is a friendship that is not only – you know, a, a very good and close friendship, but it's also a friendship of it was the guy who kind of shepherded him along when he was a younger player. And in 2012, when Chipper stepped aside, kind of passed the torch to Freddie and said, this is your franchise now. Kind of like what we saw uh, after uh, Drew Brees when we knew he was going to retire. Remember on the sidelines, he pointed to Jameis Winston and said, it's your team now. Um, you know, kind of did that same thing. And I think that one thing that really stood out to me with Chipper was that he had talked about it with Freddie, and I think that this was in the only piece as well of when he had rejected the five for 135, he told Freddie straight up, he said, you're playing a dangerous game because you're wanting to dance with the Dodgers. You're wanting to dance with the Yankees, the Red Sox, even the Rays, whoever it is out there. They're not going to wait for you, and they can't wait for you. And that's, I think, in Freddie's mind, if I had to take a guess, I think that he thought that eventually – emotions would play through that Anthopolis and the Braves would be like, we're screwed. If we lose everybody, if we don't get Olsen, if, I mean, you know, primarily number one, if we don't bring back Freddie, but if we don't do that, we don't get Olsen or at the very least like a Rizzo or somebody like that, we're in real trouble. And I think that Anthopolis, once he got that hour, you know, you have an hour to, to respond to us of a contract offer from, uh, from, from Freeman's side, he said, you know what? I'm not going to play these games. I'm going to take it, you know, for our team and I'm going to call Oakland. And he did. And he worked out a deal to get Olsen here. And I thought that this was interesting too. I can't remember who had this, but that um, he knew, you know, that morale in the clubhouse was going to be down because I wasn't there on that Monday, but I do understand it was a little bit down around Braves camp that day. But then that Tuesday, I think it picked up a little bit because you had Olsen introduced but also, too, they introduced the eight-year contract extension with Olsen as well to let you know, hey, one of the best first basemen in baseball, he's going to be here for some time. And a hometown kid and all of that yep. stuff. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Olsen's a terrific player. And Freeman is, too. But, you know, like, you know, this isn't about the Cubs. I don't want to make it about the Cubs. I have a tendency to make everything about the Cubs. Um, but, like, Rizzo. Our dog's name Rizzo. I love Anthony Rizzo. I mean, oh, I, I do too. I mean, he was, he, he was great, right? And I'll never, I'll never forget 2015 and 2016 and the magic that was that in, in our, in my house and stuff was, you know, my kids were so excited for me that my loser franchise that I'd spent my whole life cheering for won the World Series, you know, and he caught the last ball and stuff, but, mm-hmm. but he started having back problems. And little stuff. And you looked at it and you're like, God, you know, you give this guy a five-year contract and at the end of the contract, are you going to be going, you used to be great, but you're not great. And I, and I get it. You know, I understand the business of it. And in Anthony Rizzo's case, I think by not taking the Cubs deal, he left a lot of money on the table that I don't know that he'll ever get back. And I wish him nothing but goodwill in New York. I mean, I'm the guy that when Rizzo comes up, I'm like, Hey, Rizzo's up. We're going to watch, even though it's, it's, it's not a Cub anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's why I'm interested to see what happens when Freeman comes back. My guess is that the Braves fans stand and give him oh. quite the ovation and, yeah. and all of that stuff. But I think in the long run, everybody may have won there. And, and I'm an Anthopolis fan. I just think the guy acknowledges the sentimental part of the game, the emotional part of the game, but also the business and analytics mm-hmm. part of the game and looks at Freddie Freeman and goes, 
in the fifth and sixth year of a deal, it might be a really bad deal for us because Freddie Freeman, like Anthony Rizzo, if you look at it carefully enough, you can see the beginnings of some aging and it's a long season, major league baseball. And, and, you know, that when those big bodies start to break down a little bit, sometimes those deals turn into nightmares. Yeah, no, it definitely. And, and I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, they're going to come to Truist park in June and, I can only, uh, you know, guess and, and almost guarantee that the Braves being the way that the franchise is, they're going to make it first class. It's going to be red carpet. I'm sure Chelsea Freeman, his wife, Charlie, his son, and, and uh, the two other young boys, I'm sure they'll be there. Um, you know, they're, they're very grateful to the Braves and the Braves are to them as well. So I think that he's going to get the whole treatment, the ring, you know, from, from Brian Snitker, I'm sure we'll give him the box right there and, you know, and, and he'll probably be able to have the uh, the treatment that only a few guys get in baseball where, you know, when you're announced up to the plate and, you know, it's one of those, the catcher, you know, the umpire goes and dusts off the plate to kind of give you some time. And I'm sure Darno will tell him, hey, step out a little bit, man, you know, tip the crowd, you know, do do all that. Um, I, I I guarantee you that, that uh, he'll get that as well. But no, I mean, you know, I, I think that um, – you know, one of the guys that I, I told you about that, uh, you know, uh, told people to go read his uh, his stuff on this was uh, Buster Only. We had him on last week, and he brought up a great point of that the Braves' situation was almost incredibly identical to Albert Pujols in St. Louis after yeah. the 2011 season. And that it was kind of that, where it was, all right, this guy's a little on in age. Um, do we want to, you know, platoon there for a couple of years and then eventually get a guy like Paul Goldschmidt? Or do you want to give Albert the the huge contract and all of a sudden starts to break down a little bit? He's not hitting in the 320s. He's not hitting the tape measure shots as much anymore. All those different types of things. It's a bad place to be. And I think that we're, you know, it's funny enough, we're seeing a major league baseball now become what the NFL did a few years ago with the hard salary cap. And that is that the NFL became a, there's two things that are incredibly dangerous older and expensive and in baseball yeah. now it's kind of the same deal that with the the premium that is placed on on, on draft develop and bring up your own guys uh, or even make savvy trades in, in, for prospects and be able to develop them along that the cheaper option is always the better one and i know that that's what the players were fighting for too to try to cut into that a little bit and say you know hey come on you know have these owners spend some money on these teams and, instead of breaking it all the way down and building it back up. So um, I, I just, I, I think that it's going to be uh, interesting. Uh, I, I can't wait to see. I mean, we're going to get to see uh, Braves Dodgers uh, part one in April uh, out there in Los Angeles. That's going to be fun. Uh, that's, that's a great place uh, for a series. Uh, if you ever have a chance to get out to Dodger stadium. And then of course, part two in June uh, once uh, schools are out and everything uh, back here in Atlanta. So I think both series are going to be a pretty tough ticket to come by. Yeah, no question. Uh, all right, talk about the Braves. The new face of that organization now is Ronald Acuna Jr. And he had the knee injury. And you and I were joking about the fact that our knees would not have bounced back as quickly as his has. He's going to DH for a while, but sounds like he's going to be in the field a little earlier than than maybe they expected when I guess when camp first started. Yeah, I was reading today. I don't know if Alex Anthopoulos just told this to Dave O'Brien of The Athletic or if this was in a scrum. Uh, I can't remember uh, where exactly the source is, but uh, was reading one of O'Brien's tweets that apparently early May is now a possibility for him to be back out into the field. And uh, I was talking about it with a couple of guys today 
of would that mean that almost immediately out of spring training uh, here in two or three weeks that he immediately goes on a rehab assignment, which I would have to believe that's probably it. Uh, that you start sending them to uh, Rome for Class A or, you know, to uh, Mississippi for Double uh, A ball and then eventually uh, get him uh, through uh, Gwinnett before you get him up to the uh, major league level. But uh, I know that, um, you know, they were really trying to uh, take it as, uh, as, as cautiously as possible. But I also think, though, too, you know, when you got a player like Acuna, I think, uh, you know, uh, Snit had a good line last week, Brian Snitker, that, well, if they're up to him, he'd be out there right now, you know? So uh, it just shows you how much of a gamer he is. But uh, no, I think it's encouraging that uh, they're starting to feel com- more and more comfortable with uh, having him back uh, sooner rather than later. Because there are some people, again, the Twitter crowd, and somebody tried to tell me, well, you know, they won the World Series without Ronald Acuna last year. Do we really need him? I said, <laughs> a thousand times out of a thousand, you need Ronald Acuna in your lineup if you're going to go for another World Series. Yeah, so if the Braves are giving him away. I can think of a team. With I, was I, I, I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I think. I think there'd be plenty of suiters out there. You think? Yeah, if like, the Braves all of a sudden said, "Ah, we don't need Ronald Acuna," yeah, so twenty nine of them. I, I had a lot of people who had my back and not necessarily them, as, as they call that in the Twitter world. That was a ratio for him yeah. Uh, because, uh, yeah, uh, no, number 13 being at the top of the order in this Braves lineup, that makes that team always better. He's a fantastic player. Um, He's awesome. When you look at that division, uh, so Philadelphia went out and they got uh, Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber to really bolster that lineup. That is an explosive lineup in, in Philadelphia along with, you know, obviously Bryce Harper and, and some of those guys, um, the Mets went out and, and added pitching a big time. I mean, they're the top of their rotation is it's eye popping. Um, you know, the Marlins are getting better, although they, I don't think they're a contender. Uh, I mean, let's look at the East for a minute. Uh, is this, can the, can the Braves repeat? Is this, the, is this their division to win or is it, is it going to be a, a tough slog? They're definitely the favorite. I mean, I think that top to bottom, Neil, they are the most balanced out team. I mean, you know, the only real concern with the Braves right now are the four and five spots in the starting rotation. And I think there's a lot of people who say, if your only real concern is the four or five spots in the starting rotation, then I don't really think you have much of a concern. So that would be one right there. The back end of the bullpen is unbelievable. I mean, you saw how quickly that became a strength last October. They don't win the World Series without just how lights out that back end of the bullpen was with Matzik, with Mentor, uh, with uh, you know Will Smith, uh, who uh, had gotten a lot of criticism last year for how he had closed out games. And also, too, you add Darren O'Day back in, who was a really huge piece for them. And, oh, by the way, you add an all-star closer who had been getting it done out on the West Coast with the Los Angeles Dodgers now, and Jansen. Kinley Jansen, who is going to be the everyday closer. Uh, that That's already been decided uh, when uh, they decide to bring him in. But uh, the lineup is going to be outstanding. Uh, this is going to be a lineup that scores a lot of runs. It's going to be a lineup that hits a lot of home runs. That's going to be exciting. Uh, with the Phillies, uh, the Phillies are going to they're, they're going to be able to score some runs. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's uh, that's a heck of a lineup there. And um, when you play a lot of your games in that uh, home ballpark up there in Philadelphia, especially when the weather warms up, uh, you start getting a lot of home runs and you start getting a lot of runs. I, I think that their problem remains the same, though. I, I think the back end of the bullpen uh, is still a little bit of a concern for them. Uh, I think the starting rotation is not 100 percent there. Uh, conversely, I think with the Mets, you know, you mentioned it with Scherzer and DeGrom. I mean, they're outstanding, 
Um, but I, I wonder about the offense with the Mets. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Nationals, I think the Nationals are kind of in like that really weird no man's land right now where they're kind of like, do we want to try to build this up to contend or do we want to kind of start to hit the reset a little bit? Because it sounds like at least from the reports we heard of um, the contract offer to Juan Soto is that he was not too keen on being a Washington national long-term. So if that's the case, then can you imagine the market for that guy? Oh, it's going to be unbelievable. It's, it's going to be unbelievable. The, 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 the moment I became a believer in him is when I saw him take Garrett Cole in the World Series onto the train tracks. Mind you, he's a left-handed hitter. Taking Garrett Cole opposite field onto the train tracks, I said, yep, that guy's legit. And, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll might see get, what the Marlins do. He might be the guy that gets the first $500 million deal. He could be. I, 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 was, I was just about to say that. He, he might break half a billion. It's it's a possibility. I mean, he's he's got it all. So uh, I think right now, though, if if you really you know really pinch me for for who I think the contenders are in the East, I, I think that it is obviously the Braves number one. Uh, I would put the Phillies ahead of the Mets just from the bats. Uh, I think that they're slightly just with with the uh, with, with the bats, and it's become such an offensive league now in baseball uh, that they're probably uh, the, the next uh, best threat. And then the Mets, you know, obviously with what they have with uh, the uh, the starting rotation there. So uh, it's going to be a fun summer uh, again, as it always is. But uh, I like the Braves in the East. All right, last thing. I spent some time on your show uh, earlier in the week. We talked a lot of Ole Miss football, some college football. It's it's never goes away in the South, as you know. No. Um, in, Georgia just won a national title. Kirby now is going to defend a title. Kirby Smart. Um, just it's super early, and there's a lot of time left before we all get together in Atlanta for media days and stuff. But when you look at the SEC, what do you sort of expect um, going into the season? Is it still Alabama and and Georgia at the top and everybody else just kind of clawing, or do you see some programs that are closing in on them? I think that probably, you know, if you, if you put the sec uh, media days ballot in front of me right now, it's probably Alabama and Georgia. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You see the team that Alabama has coming back. I mean, they almost got everybody back from last year's team. Now we've been cautioned with Nick Saban teams in the past when they've had that, because I think anytime that Nick Saban has a lot of players coming back, he immediately starts to have nightmares of 2010. I don't think this team's going to have nightmares of 2010 because A, I think that they're way too talented, but B, I also think that he's a much better coach than he was back then where now he can go through that experience and and see the warning signs of complacency and resting on laurels and all those different things. And I think that as we've seen with Nick Saban teams, when they lose a national title or they lose any type of big game, what necessarily happens next, Neil? We've seen it numerous times. You usually don't get them twice in a row. That so, fourth quarter in Indianapolis is going to run on a loop in Tuscaloosa. Oh, Those kids are going to see that fourth quarter because Georgia kicked their ass in the fourth and, quarter. And, and, and they're going the to thing. see it over and over and over. That's going to be motivation for that team. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and that's the thing, too, is, I mean, you, you think that Nick Saban necessarily liked shaking Kirby Smart's hand and telling him you kicked our ass in the fourth quarter? I mean, that probably eventually after he did that, the, the smirk kind of immediately went to a scowl of, Yep, that's not going to happen again for us. So I, I think that uh, those are probably the two. Uh, the team that I'm interested in the East, uh, I really am interested to see if Tennessee can bounce back from last year in terms of being able to build on what they did last year. I think that's going to be a question for them, the defensive questions. 
that were last year. I think they're amplified a little bit more this year with the lack of depth that they have at certain positions, primarily linebacker. Um, but I, I think with Hendon Hooker, he is somebody that gives you a chance. I'm interested to see what Spencer Rattler can do at South Carolina. Yeah. And, and if and if that offense can get on track and, and if Shane Beamer can really start to kind of harken back to those early 2010s of uh, South Carolina football and, and be able to have them as a competitive program again, because I don't know about you, I thought it was fun when Steve Spurrier had that thing going in Williams Bryce Stadium at night with the fireworks and the sandstorm and everything like that. It was and a I pretty thought fun. Beamer did a great job last year. That he, was he not a outstanding. Good no, I mean, they won. They won seven games with that team. That was a yeah. remarkable accomplishment. Yeah, now that 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 definitely was an outstanding team. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Excited to see your guys with all the transfers, uh, Ole Miss. I mean, I, you know, I think that they're a team that brings in a lot of talent, and the question's going to be at quarterback with uh, Altmaier and uh, with um, uh, with Jackson Dart as well uh, to see uh, who eventually uh, is able to uh, step forward for them. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting year for Arkansas, and here's what I mean. I've said it numerous times on air that I think that in a way – Sam Pittman has kind of become the SEC's Dabo, where he's building a program there where at Clemson, seemingly for the longest time, if you're an assistant coach there, there is no real motivation for you to leave. You seemingly are able to do your job and do it exactly the way that you want it, that you want to do it. It sounds like from everybody I talk with in, in, uh, in, in Fayetteville. That's the same deal, that Barry Odom is able to call his defense. Kendall Bryles is able to call his offense. Um, I'm interested to see how this offense looks this year with Kendall Bryles because I I think that uh, he's got a really good one in K.J. Jefferson and and also, uh, too, with Jaden Hazelwood coming over. I think that uh, that's a huge pickup for them. You know, it's uh, interesting. And and, and a good offensive line, too, for that Arkansas Razorbacks team. What's the thing we know that uh, when Arkansas was really good, it was when they were really good on the line. You know, it's funny you say that about Arkansas because I've, I've had this conversation with some people because Ole Miss has been so dynamic in the portal that I think it overshadowed the fact that that Pittman at Arkansas was very similar with the uh, with not not to the numbers and they didn't get the kind of guys that Ole Miss got, but like they went out and added a bunch of guys in the portal, had a lot of turnover, had a lot of guys leave in the portal, brought a bunch of guys into the portal. Uh, Shane Beamer was active in the portal. It wasn't just Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin gets the headlines because they had probably the best transfer portal class. But if you look around the league, there were four or five programs that were right there with them in terms of, yeah, this is the way to do this at Arkansas, much like Ole Miss. You're not going to recruit a bunch of five-star kids to to go to Fayetteville. You don't have the NIL money Mm -hmm. with the A&M has, the Texas has, Uh, but you can, you can get kids that, maybe weren't getting the playing time where they were, uh, you know, and, and, and get them to come there and say, hey, come here for one year, two years, prove yourself, go to the league, and right. we'll get you a little bit of NIL or whatever. And, and Arkansas has done that. I'm with you. The, the West is full of really interesting stories, and they're kind of one of them. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see in the West, too, is, is there a possibility that the league beats up on itself this year? Because – I think the other two questions that you have in the West are both that talent is not necessarily an issue, and that's at LSU, because I've said it numerous times that it's it's never going to be a question of talent in Baton Rouge. It's going to be a question of do they have good enough coaching. In 2019, they had good enough coaching in spite of the head coach. They had other coaches on that staff that were able to lead that program, and we've seen it now with what Dave Aranda has been able to do at, at Baylor. 
I think that the question for LSU is can they get back to their identity of being a tough physical football team? Uh, I think that over the last couple of years, at least the physicality part of it, I think especially offensively, they lost that a little bit. Because even in 2019, when they were throwing it all over the place with Joe Burrow and, and the Joe Brady offense was going the way it was, you know, Neil, you can back me up on this or, or push back either way. When they needed to run the football, they could run the football. Oh, absolutely. Last couple, the last couple of years, I'm not so sure that that's the case. How many times last year in short yardage situations, third or fourth down, did we see LSU get pushed back? And you're probably thinking to yourself, the hell does this happen to LSU? Yeah. I, I can't remember many years seeing that. Uh, for Texas saying, um, look, I, I think that the number one thing, if I'm an if I'm an Aggie fan, is yes, you've been to a New Year's Six Bowl game. All right, check that box. Getting to Atlanta is, is a huge thing for them. This is a very important year for Jimbo at the quarterback position. Yeah. Because I think if I'm an AM fan, I look at what he has done to this point with the quarterback position and I kind of look around and go, I thought that's what you are. Like I, I thought you're supposed yeah. to be the quarterback whisperer. So everybody I talk with though says he's gonna have a chance because they really like what they have in Haynes King. I understand before he got hurt last year, he was far and away the guy over Zach Calzada. And I think we saw numerous instances last year why that was the case. They're very high on that Connor Weigman kid, uh, the kid out of the Houston area. I, I know that um, you know somebody had brought up Quinn Ewers, and they said no, they weren't even they, they weren't even entertaining Quinn Ewers. It was all Connor Weigman. And I've been told that a real wild card in this, don't sleep on Max Johnson, that that I think that yeah. if nothing else, that 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 might be the route that Jimbo goes kind of to what I was just talking about, getting the quarterback position really jump started there of a guy that has shown you some really good things. And he's he's going to have a good group to work with there uh, in College Station. So I, I just I'm with you. I, I think that in the East, there's far less questions about teams that can compete. Uh, because I just don't think that uh, most of them, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina, I don't think they're there yet, Florida. Uh, but in the SEC West, you're 100% right. It's Once you get to that SEC West uh, schedule this year, uh, it's not going to be an easy week. That's why if I'm an Auburn fan, I'm worried. You know, they, They've got some talent, sure, because they're Auburn, but they don't have nearly the kind of talent that they normally have. And now you have some, some fractions and stuff, and – uh, you've got Calzada coming in as probably your quarterback and people have seen him and people have seen Finley. There's not an intimidation factor. And you look around at the division and obviously Alabama's head and shoulders above Auburn. Uh, A&M is too. Ole Miss is. I think Arkansas is. Yeah. And, you know, and then LSU is going to be a first year coach with Brian Kelly and people can make fun of the dancing and stuff. And I do. And Lane Kiffin's made fun of it and all that. But Brian Kelly wins everywhere he goes. He and does. So it's, it's really, you know, and that's, and I don't know what I think about Mississippi State. You got Rodgers coming back for another season. So you've got a veteran quarterback. You've got a lot of guys. And I know ESPN, the FNP or whatever is high on them. I just can't go. I'm not, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I got to see more, but sure. But if I'm Auburn, I'm, I've, you mentioned if, if I'm sitting in Atlanta today with my ballot in front of me. Mm. I know I'm putting Alabama one, mm -hmm. and I know I'm putting Auburn seven. Yeah. And, and given all that's going on with Brian Harson and such, that, that has a chance to be pretty explosive. Maybe in the wrong year to have a lot of trauma because this is a division that can eat you up. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely is. I mean, I, I, you're exactly right. I, I think that there is an opportunity for this Auburn team 
to be shades of 2012. And what happened in 2012? They moved on from Gene Chizik and they brought in Gus. Um, if that happens, because one thing that we're already starting to see happen as well is they're losing their their grip on recruiting. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a program that makes their bread and butter of being able to get players from the coastal Alabama area. I mean, you know, lower Alabama and then Southwest Georgia, uh, LaGrange, Columbus, those areas like that. They're able to get a lot of guys. They'll dip into Florida, Texas, other, other places, Atlanta as well, you know, in the state of Georgia. But everybody I've talked with, and, and Neil, I know you talk with a lot of people as well. It just sounds like Harson in year one did himself no favors with high school coaches in the area. It's putting it no mildly. favors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and I just, I can't imagine taking over a program like Auburn and if not burning bridges, at least getting off to an awkward first impression with high school coaches, because yeah. I would feel like the number one thing I want to do is let them know like, Hey, our program is here for you. Use us as a resource. We we'd love to help you. We want to keep this, you know, th- this line of communication going. And we all know that, you know, people joke about it all the time of, you know, being being a head coach in this part of the country. Being able to play the game and recruiting and politics is as much a part of this job as being able to put eleven guys on offense and eleven guys on defense and being able to put the ball through the uprights and special teams. Um, it's, it's as important as that. And if they have a bad season this year, we already saw them get into the red zone of possibly moving on from him this year, deep into the red zone. Yeah. yeah they, they, they have a bad season and, and yeah, it's, no it's just looking terrible. They're, they're going to have no problem getting rid of Brian Harson. Hey, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much. It's always uh, fun catching up with you. Appreciate it. Hope to uh, catch up with you again soon as, yeah. as the summer moves along. Absolutely, man. And, you know, love, uh, love the work you do and, and always uh, great to catch up with you. And uh, of course, uh, can, can I, can I give a plug? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Yeah, please. Uh, so uh, Southern sports today app is uh, where you can listen to the Chuck Oliver show. If indeed you don't have a Chuck Oliver show affiliate near where you live. So we are on the app 24 seven. You missed the show when we were on daily, you can go back and listen to the full two hours that way. Uh, you can also find my podcast on there that uh, my man Neil was yeah. just on with me to, to uh, talk some uh, Ole Miss uh, spring ball and uh, everything of the sort. Uh, the Southern Beat podcast is there on the on the uh, Southern Sports Today uh, app as well. So uh, always good, man, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing and talking with you again soon. Me too. Keep it up. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it, buddy. Again, that was Dan Matthews. Thanks to him for his time on the show tonight. Uh, that does it for this edition of Hand Raise, guys. Again, brought to you by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Same great products, same great service, same great people, just different names. Again, if you're in Oxford or uh, Tupelo, that area, get in touch with the people at Comer. If you're in Southern, if you're in uh, Hernando, DeSoto County, that area, get in touch with the people at Southern. The number's there on the screen. We will be back with you on uh, Monday morning with an edition of the Oxford Exxon podcast. Again, Ole Miss baseball against Tennessee this weekend at home. Uh, Ole Miss has a uh, good number of unofficial visitors coming in. One official visitor, Quincy Riley from Middle Tennessee, the uh, transfer portal cornerback. A lot of stuff in a war room brought to you by the Oxford Crystal. That's up at rebelgrove.com. I'll be out at uh, the Manning Center early on Saturday, hopefully talking to some recruits about their visit. And then uh, we'll have practice 
observations up on Saturday afternoon. Ole Miss practices around 11.15 on uh, Saturday morning in Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. That practice is open to the public. I'll have 10 Weekend Thoughts uh, brought to you by Game Changer Patch Company up on uh, Sunday. And uh, we'll be back with another week of podcast and more here at uh, MPW Digital starting on Monday. So, again, uh, thanks to Kendall Rogers. Thanks to Dan Matthews. Thanks to Neil Stratton for their time on the show tonight. Thanks to all of you for making us a part of your week. And uh, we'll talk to you again on Monday. I'm Neil McCready. Good night.